All right, welcome back to Lindroth Hockey Podcast, episode 20. You're here with co-host, father and son duo, Andrew and James Lindroth. Dad, how are you doing today? I am doing great. Andrew, our guest, uh, we've been waiting, you know, for weeks to have this guy on. I, I hated this guy as a player, but I respected him. I respected his team. Um, I know that a lot of our Boston listeners are going to love this podcast uh, because we get to ask some questions of uh, one of the true legends of the NHL from my era, right. I'm 52. Right. So please get with the intro. Let's get going. Yeah. So obviously up next, we have a special guest, Shane Corson. So Shane spent three years in the OHL from 83 to 86 and ended up being drafted eighth overall in the 1984 NHL draft by the Montreal Canadiens. After graduating from the OHL, Shane's services were called upon immediately from Montreal, where he ended up playing from 1985 till 1992. He then suited up for the Edmonton Oilers from 92 to 95, St. Louis Blues from 95 to 97, and then returned to Montreal until the year 2000. Later, he formed that deadly duo with brother-in-law Darcy Tucker as a Toronto Maple Leaf from 2000 to 2003, and then wrapped up his career with the Dallas Stars during the 2003 and 2004 season. Shane was also a part of the 98 Canadian Olympic team, the 93 and 94 IIHF World Championship Canadian team, and for Team Canada as well in the 85 and 86 World Junior Championships. Shane is one of the handful of NHL players to reach the 1,000-game milestone, racking up over 2,000 penalty minutes in NHL career, retired with 273 goals and 693 points. That was a mouthful. So without further ado, we'll welcome <laughs> our guest, Shane Corson. Welcome, Shane. How are you, Shane? Uh, thanks for having me. I, did, did my mom write that out for you? My yeah, mom, I think so. <laughs> she's my, my biggest fan. Yeah, I know. I was riding. I was yeah. like, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Shane, we, we want to get right to the question of, of what we ask a lot of the, our guests that make it to the NHL. So it takes an elite athlete to make it to the NHL. But what does it really take? to make it to the NHL. Clue us yeah. in on that. Well, to be honest, to start with, uh, I was lucky enough to have a lot of, a lot of support. My parents uh, made a lot of sacrifices, taking me to the rink early in the morning, late at night. Um, didn't get things that they wanted. They, they worked so hard to be able to pay for me to play hockey and get the ice time I needed to, to be successful. Obviously you gotta, you gotta work hard at it. But for me, I always tell everybody, you gotta enjoy what you're doing. You gotta be passionate about it. You gotta have fun. You gotta, you gotta really enjoy it. Uh, but hard work, uh, was probably the biggest thing and enjoying the game, but the support I had throughout my career, uh, you got to have some luck too, to be honest. I mean, you got to have somebody that believes in you, uh, along the way and gives you the opportunity and be, uh, to be put in places, uh, where you can be successful, not to fail. So uh, there's a lot of things that have to fall into place. I mean, you mentioned you have to be a good athlete, but there's a lot more to just being a good athlete. And, um, so I mentioned a few of them, but for me, it's just uh, hard work, uh, sacrifice, and, uh, and believe it in yourself and, and not letting anybody tell you you can't do something you want to do in life. So some of, some of the guests we talked to, they're, they're talking about they just had it in their mind that they were going to make it to the NHL. They didn't know how, but they were just going to do it. Uh, did you have that mindset or was it more of I'm just going to work as hard as I can and whatever falls into place falls into place? Well, I always had the dreams. I always dreamed of being a, an NHL hockey player, being from uh, just north of Toronto here in Canada, Ontario. Uh, we used to watch hockey in Canada every Wednesday and Saturday night. And uh, hockey was my favorite sport. My dad loved the game. Uh, so it's something that I always dreamed of. Uh, I think when I really realized I might have a, a solid chance was uh, when I got drafted to the OHL, uh, pretty high in the OHL draft. And then when I got drafted to the Habs and at the Montreal Forum was uh, the, a moment when I realized that I had a chance. There was still a lot of hard work ahead of me. 
I mean, I know a lot of guys who were drafted never made it or made it and guys who were drafted very high never made it. So you still have a lot of work ahead of you just because you've been drafted high doesn't mean you're going to be, be playing. But uh, obviously I had a, a dream and um, obviously I had a lot of passion for the game and I was willing to put the effort and the hard work into becoming an NHL hockey player. But like I said, there's a lot of things that have to stay in place and fall into place for you to be to get there. And it had, there's some luck. You got to stay healthy, too. So there's so many things that uh, have to uh, fall into place for you to, to make it to the NHL. It's not easy. I mean, my, my son played in the OHL. And uh, that was, uh, if you look at the numbers, it's not a lot of players that play in Ontario here make it to the OHL. So it's a tough, it's a tough uh, thing to do. But I was lucky enough and fortunate enough, like I said, to have a lot of people help me along the way, my teammates, my coaches, my parents, and uh, friends and family. And so as a teenager, I always like to ask this question because I feel like, you know, the, the ones who work hard their whole lives become professional athletes. I mean, I had to make some serious sacrifices. So back when you were a teenager, I mean, did you have to make sacrifices and you didn't hang out with friends as much, go to the prom, or you always at the rink instead? I mean, I, we sometimes hear those stories where they're like, you know, we didn't have a normal like high school social right. life or anything. So was that the case for you or? Yeah, I was pretty lucky though. I was from a small town. So all my best friends, I was like, I said, I was from Barrie, Ontario. It's 150,000 now. It's grown so much. When I left Barrie, it was 25,000 back, back in 1984. But for me, I was lucky. All my best friends were on my team because we were just, we had one A, a team at my age in Barrie. So we all played together. We spent our time together. We went to tournaments and rode in the bus together and just, just had a lot of fun together. But for sure, you had to make sacrifices. There was nights on a Friday night that you wanted to go out and be with some buddies and have some fun with the kids you went to school with, but you had to stay in and get ready for the game the next day. And that's just some sacrifices you had to make, you had to make uh, if you wanted to be successful and play well and do well and get to where you wanted to get to. But I mean, people in life have to make sacrifices uh, to, to be successful in whatever they're doing in life. So whether you're a hockey player, a doctor, a police officer, or uh, just a garbage man, there's sacrifices you have to make uh, when you're doing a job or working at something you want to be successful at, but definitely there were some sacrifices and um, I mean, I got class at age 15, so I had, I had a few more things, hurdles to get over and a few more sacrifices I had to make, have to make. But I mean, back when I, I, I was a teenager, things were a little bit different. Uh, you guys, you kids now that go through what you're going through with social media and all the pressures that they put on you about school and, and sports and all that stuff. There's so much more pressure on you kids. I'm not saying it wasn't pressure on us back then, but way more now with social media and, and the pressure from the coaches and the parents of being successful at hockey and school. So I think it's changed a lot over the years. Absolutely. So fast forward, we were talking right before here. So Boston and Montreal obviously served as one of the strongest rivalries in, in all of hockey and in sports for many years, especially back in your playing day, Shane. So yeah. what was the mindset the night before, especially if you were to go to the Boston <laughs> Garden? I mean, did you and your teammates stay up the night before? Like, yeah, it's going to be a bloodbath or did you just kind of – Oh, man. You know what? Uh for me, I always loved playing the Boston Garden, one of the best rinks to play hockey in, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, at the old Boston Garden, fans felt like they were right on top of you. Just the smell of the building and the history in the building and everything, right? So they were just totally different from the new buildings nowadays. But yeah, it's like I, people ask me all the time, because I played in Toronto and played in Montreal, what that rivalry was like. And it, back in the day when I played for Montreal, especially in my first six years, the, the biggest rivalry we had was probably the Boston Bruins for sure. I mean, the Bruins had a great team. Uh, they had some great players and obviously Ray Bork and Cam Neely and uh, Miller and all those guys that, you know, they're, they, they just, it just was a, a fun game to play. And you come out of that game, you knew you played it. Uh, you were in a, in a hockey game for sure. But um, yeah, the night before it was a little bit of nervousness for sure. Cause you knew it was going to be a war, yeah. but it was exciting. It was excitement too, because it was just a great fun 
ranked the play in the fans were like right into it and all over us and giving it to us and abusing us pretty good too from, from the stand. So it, was, it made it more, even more exciting and more fun, but they had a great team. We had a great team. So it was a great game too. It wasn't just, uh, you know, the brawl, we had a bunch of brawls with them and all that stuff, but it was just good. It's strong, tough hockey and old school hockey. So it was, uh, for me and people always ask me, I just tell them Montreal and, and Toronto or Montreal and uh, Boston were the, the best uh, rivalry for me when I was playing back then. So I want to ask a, about a story. So it's 1987 and for the listeners, especially young listeners. So I'm just going to mention some, some tough guys here. So Montreal uh, comes into Boston garden and they've got Mike, uh, Mike McPhee, they yeah. got Knuckles Nyland, they got Cordick, they got Larry Robinson, the great captain, mm-hmm. great coach too, by the way. Yeah. Austin, Boston had Jay Miller, Lyndon Byers, Cam Neely. Um, so Shane Corson is in the penalty box. I forget what he was. And, <laughs> and Knuckles Nyland decides to go crazy. He gets thrown out of the game after going against some guy who doesn't even know what the word fight means, Boudelier or whatever his name was. Yeah, Paul Boudelier, takes, I think. Yeah, <laughs> he takes a swing at, at Terry O'Reilly, who's the coach then. <laughs> and so what happened? You're sitting in a penalty box. I was actually just talking about this story uh, two days ago with an old teammate of mine, Sergio Momesso, who was there at the time too. So he was another guy who was tough too. Sergio Momesso was a tough, pretty tough dude too in our team. Steve Rooney was another guy from the Boston area. But uh, yeah, Knuckles, uh, he, he had a temper. And when it was, uh, when that switch went off, it was going off and he took a swing. Remember, because the benches were in the old, the old garden were right beside each other. It was just the, the alleyway to go to our, our dress room down below because there were stairs to go down to the cement. But I remember... Knox went crazy and then he took a swing at O'Reilly and you know what O'Reilly was like he wasn't going to take anything he was in his suit and next thing you know I see there's a fight going on between the benches and then all of a sudden I went down I seen a bunch of guys go down the stairs and guys coming off our bench guys off their bench and I'm sitting in the penalty box I'm going what am I going to do here I better I, I got to go help so I jumped out of the box and jumped into the into the battle and we went at it for quite a while down the uh down the hallway and there was all cement down there our skates were just demolished and Oh. Eddie Palachuk told us after the fight, just leave your skates. Don't worry about it. Just go out there. <laughs> the, the, the garden's ice isn't great anyways. It won't hurt you. But I remember after the fight, I went back and sat back in the penalty box. And nowadays I would have been suspended forever, but I just, <laughs> they, they, like, they didn't, I didn't even get thrown out of the game. It wasn't even like, I didn't get suspension, didn't get a fine, nothing. I just went really? back after the fight was over and sat down and remained in the game. But it, it was crazy. It was wild. There was all, there was so many brawls like that. But that thing was, that could have been scary because it was down the hallway, skates all over the, everybody's in the, on the cement. Uh, the coaches were, were got, got involved. Uh, trainers were trying to pull guys apart. The referees <laughs> couldn't get down there. It was, it was nuts. Like they couldn't get down there. So it was just like a free for all. And it was like, but I, I wasn't surprised with Knox and Terry O'Reilly either. And Lindsman was sitting there. Lindsman was standing there too, chirping away that really got Knox going. And he yeah. was good at that. Lindsman was always good at the, the chirping and, uh, and played hard. I got to give him credit though. That guy, I played one of his brothers in junior hockey, but and I got to know him after, actually, after hockey, Lensman a bit from doing some events with uh, Gretzky down at Gretzky's fantasy camp in, in Vegas. I have to give him credit, though. He would show up and he would he would battle hard on the night. It wasn't just chirp, chirp, and he would battle hard every night, too. So it was it was pretty scary, but it was pretty pretty funny. And uh, it's something that I always, one of the stories I always tell when I'm on one of these podcasts or talking to somebody there, it, it was nuts. Oh, yeah, it, awesome. it, was, it was crazy. So being sort of, uh, you know, one of the, T, uh, being a member of one of the teams of the you know that's hated in Boston, but now you spend a lot of time in Boston. Your daughter Willow is plays hockey at BC Boston College, yeah. and uh, seems like you're starting to get to know some Bostonians, and uh, they're not so bad people after all. <laughs> they're not. Let me tell you, we have a lot of fun. I'm I'm gonna. Well, when I first came down there, 
I noticed you weren't coming very close to me. You were kind of looking at me funny. And I was thinking, what the heck? And then Willow told me a story. She goes, a lot of the dads on the team didn't like you a whole lot. Uh, like the dads of the girls on the team didn't like you a whole lot in your day when you played for Montreal. But once I got to know them all and we've had a few beers together and just talked hockey, we all have the same thing in common. We love hockey. We love our kids and just excited. Our kids are going to a good school and getting to play in a good program. And um, I mean, I love the Boston people. I love, I love their mentality. I love the type of people there. They're all super, super fun and love sports and uh, Boston itself. It's like one of my favorite cities to go to even before my daughter played school down there. I just love going to Boston and it's just, it's grown so much since I played hockey there though. And so, some of the areas have changed so much since I played there because we stayed in Boston quite a bit, but um, I didn't get to tour around the city or spend as much time I'd like to. And now I got the time to go there and spend time and just have a lot of fun with them now. And we, we, uh, we really enjoy ourselves. And like I said, we, we talk a lot of sports, a lot of hockey and uh, drink quite a few beers too, which is good. I'm good with that. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So going back to the OHL days, I'd always heard that, especially I know the minor leagues, the ECHL and the AHL, but heard the, the junior leagues were pretty brutal too. And I mean, you had over a hundred penalty minutes each season. So how brutal was those AHL or the OHL league back in the day? I mean, was it really like the wild, wild West back in the eighties? Yeah. I, I think uh, like a lot of the junior league, like the Western hockey league was nuts too. A lot of tough guys came on a, you mentioned uh, Lyndon Byers, who I ended up fighting once or twice. I mean, I wasn't in his league, but I, I showed up and did my best. He was really a, a hell of a tough guy and did a, was a great teammate. And he came from out west, and those guys are great teammates and tough guys. But I think all the junior leagues back in that, that day were, were pretty crazy, pretty tough. Like Bob Probert was my left winger for a year and a half in junior before we traded him to uh, Sault Ste. Marie. But there were so many tough guys in the Ontario Hockey League. And um, uh, the rules are a lot, we're a lot different. Obviously fighting's changed and I understand why it's, they're taken out of the game. We got to protect their players and they have a life after hockey. And I mean, saying that I, I miss fighting and I miss it being part of the game, but I understand why they're taking it out. But yeah, I mean, I had a crazy coach. The second part of my, on my Ontario hockey league career was a bill of forge who had been suspended from the Ontario league, went out West, got suspended for life out there, came back to the Ontario league. And like, we used to steal the, the pucks from the other team's, in warm-up because there was no referees back in the day in warm-up so we went down we had a tough team we had Probert Troy Crowder played New Jersey and Detroit we had uh so many tough guys Bobby Probert and uh we we used to steal the other team's pucks in warm-up and we used to dress us all in black and then we'd switch back into our regular gear like our our sweaters and our our socks for the game but he thought we looked meaner in black we used to steal their pucks shoot pucks at them and we had so many brawls in warm-up but probably the craziest fight that I was involved in uh was uh uh, one Sunday afternoon, we used to have the uh, OHL game of the week on Sunday afternoon at two o'clock. And we had traded probably to the Sioux, the Sioux and they had a really tough team. They had Chris Brandt, uh, Bobby Probert. Uh, they had Jeff Bukaboom who played in Edmonton and New York Rangers. And then we had, you know, we had Brad Delgarno and uh, Billy, uh, Jimmy Boalda was a tough guy. Um, we had so many, Troy Crowder was still there. Uh, Mike Ware was there. So we ended up having a brawl with them in the, the game of the week on TV. And it wasn't like, wasn't great. And Billy LaForge ended up getting suspended, but the fight went on for about an hour and a half. And there's our trainer comes out in the ice. This is on TV. Like they show this, they video it, they show a bit of it on TV, but then they got rid of most of it because it wasn't great for kids on a Sunday afternoon. But there's our trainer out in the ice, picking up all our helmets and gloves and sticks after the brawl was over. But the fight went on. Our goalie were beat. Our two goalies were crazy tough as nails. Chris Pusey and uh, uh, Rich uh, Richards was his last name. Pete Richards, he was nails too. And they were beat, their goalies wouldn't even come off the bench, but our goalies wouldn't took them, grab them and give it to them on the bench. But the fight went on forever. 
And uh, Billy didn't coach another game in the OHL after that. For he was suspended. The, the league went crazy because it was a Sunday afternoon game, and there was a lot of lot, lot of a uh, lot of bloody noses. But it was different back then. There was a lot of bloody noses, and then you just got over it after. But it was pretty pretty nuts that brawl. Wow. <laughs> so going there was back. a lot. There was a lot more than that, though. A lot more than that. I watched Bobby Probert fix his nose from being broken a couple times after brawl. He goes. He, one night we got thrown out. We're in the we're in the uh, the dress room. Where he's in the wash. I go to see what, how he's doing after brawl in Belleville, and he's in there. And he goes, "This is how you do it, of course." And he just snaps his nose oh. and says, fixes his own nose. And he goes, "That's how you do her." But yeah, it was just. I mean, we had like five or six, seven brawls at least a year, or probably more than that. Warm up in between in during games, in between periods. It was before games. It was it was pretty tough, but the games changed a lot. Wow, wow. Yeah, a lot, a lot. Yeah, and you guys dude. know, being Bruins fans, especially your your dad, yeah, he's, yeah. Oh, he's yeah. seen a lot of he's seen a lot of crazy shit over the years in Boston Garden. Let me tell you, those guys yeah. in the day, in the seventies and eighties, the Bruins had some of the toughest teams and some of the toughest guys, but they could also play. That was a different difference. It all changed at one point where there was guys that could play, like Terry O'Reilly could play the game, and but he's tough as nails, right? Uh, you know, Chris Allen played a played a, a key role in the Montreal Canadiens, but he could fight and tough and could play the game. But then it kind of changed to where. The fighters, they only came out in the ice when they were going to fight, which was unfortunate for them because they probably could play, but their roles changed. And I, that, I think that's why they took the fighting out of the game. When more happened on somebody was really pissed off at somebody and had and somebody really ran one of their teammates or gave him a dirty shot so the guy comes over and fights him, it was more planned later in, in, in hockey. And I think that's why they wanted to get that part of it out of the game. But in the old days, man, these guys could play the 70s and 80s. They could really play and, and, and they were nails. And I just named a couple of them, but there were so many of them. Oh, they were. Yeah. Terry O'Reilly is the first guy I ever seen to score a goal off of his face. Yeah. You know? It didn't even bother him. Yeah. And he, he you know, smiled. He, was happy, he, he yeah. was happy because he got a goal. He wasn't, he didn't hurt. <laughs> yeah. He was on the score sheet. He was, That's thrilled. Right. he was thrilled. It's ridiculous. So going back to your draft now, I mean, obviously now they have this massive ceremony and parents, yeah. families all there for this. What was, what was your draft story? How did you get the college? You were the eighth overall draft pick. Well, back in the day, the, the draft was actually held at the Montreal Forum every year. Now now they move it around, right, to different locations, which I think is great for, for cities and teams, and they get to hold the draft. And But back in the day, it was held every year at the Montreal Forum. Um, I mean, the night before we came in, they brought us in because they knew I was ranked uh, fifth overall. I think it was ranked the day of the draft. And I'd run into a little bit of trouble with my family and a couple of families in Barrie. There was a bit of a uh, – our family wasn't really close with the Lawson and Murphy family. We got into a bit of a fight. You know, the small towns, we got into a little bit of a fight. And that kind of got in the news. And I guess my rankings might've dropped. It might've dropped to eighth overall, but no, my rankings of the day were the, were fifth. So they, they called all the first rounders that back then they used to video the first round. And I, I'm not sure if they did the second round. I think it was just the first round. So they had said that I had a good chance. So I went in the night before and got interviewed by four or five teams and had, Montreal told me they were going to take me fifth. And uh, they actually took Peter Svoboda who came from the Czech and they had snuck him out of the Czechoslovakia because back then you had to get out of there. You couldn't just draft them and, uh, uh, he could come over wherever he wanted to. You, it was, I think it was communist back then. So you had to get, you couldn't, you couldn't leave. You had to sneak him out. And I think he was at a tournament and he left, uh, took off from his team. But um, so the day of the draft, I, I was ranked fifth. Like I said, they picked Peter fifth, sixth and seventh. They passed. And then they made a trade with St. Louis blues. And uh, they traded Rick Walmsley and some picks, I think to the St. Louis blues. And they picked me eighth overall. And it was right at the Montreal forum for one of the most history, history teams in, in, in sports, let alone hockey. And uh, to share that with my parents, who were both there at the time, like you said, they brought the families down. Uh, it was pretty special for me to get drafted by the Montreal Canadiens, who I, I'll be honest, didn't like 
as a kid growing up, I was a big Leaf fan. Bruin, Bruins and uh, and Flyers I liked because I liked. Uh, I obviously loved Bobby Orr growing up, and I loved uh, Bobby Clark and Brian Trotter were two of my favorite players, and and Daryl Sittler. But uh, to be drafted by them, and I just grew to love the, the 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 organization. The city was a lot of fun, so it was just a great, great fun day for me. But to share with my parents was the most special thing for me because they sacrificed so much for me. We asked, uh, we had Brian Prop on about a month ago. We asked him, he was another first rounder at 79. And uh, he goes, uh, I was on the family farm in Saskatchewan. I didn't know until the next day. And my dad (laughs) said, you're going to Philly. So I guess they had, I I don't know when they started doing this draft uh, thing, but maybe he just wasn't invited. I don't know. (laughs) No, I think, I think you're right. Probably. No, he would have been invited. He was, I tell you what, we had some wars with the Flyers when he was in Philadelphia. And then he was obviously in Boston and he was a hell of a player, Brian Prop And, and didn't uh, shy away from anything. I remember one time, like I was even worried about him. He got hit by Chelios in, in the forum when we were in the playoffs the one year. And I mean, he went down hard. He was bleeding from the nose, but the guy was back, like back in the lineup the next night. Uh, nowadays, he'd be out for weeks and he was back playing the, uh, the next night. So he was a hell of a player and, and, and tough and could score and do it all. But I think it changed maybe in the, like maybe in the eighties or something, but I'm telling you a lot of guys, I hear stories. Uh, they were at home, they got the call and they didn't know until the next day, but Still pretty special to get drafted in the first round and find out. Those guys work so hard from the out west. And, you know, they were, a lot of them work on the farms out there. and That's why they're so tough and, they, and they, they're, they're willing to pay the price and work hard. But just wanted to tell that little story. And I couldn't believe Shelly elbowed him pretty hard. Like Shelly might have got about 10 games, maybe 20 games, if that would happen now. He had Shelly also elbowed him, who's a good friend of mine. I love him. Another competitor. But he elbowed Proppy in the playoffs that one year. And and I'm telling you, he was went down. He was laying there. I could see blood. I don't know what was coming out of his nose or his ear, but. I was worried about him, but like I said, he was back playing the next night. That's the way they were. Tough. Tough so tell us a little bit about playing in Montreal Forum. And, you know, for Andrew and the young people, and I could yeah. be wrong, but if I remember right, right behind the Canadians bench is like all the old players, the yep. entire administration, the prime minister of Canada. Yep. And it's like they're staring at you every time you get off a ship. I mean, what yep. is it like to play in Montreal Forum? Another historic, beautiful building. I'll tell you what, the hot dogs were great. <laughs> I used to have a hot dog between the, the second and third period because I was so hungry. I, and Pat Burns actually caught me one night. He wasn't very happy. Ke- Mike Keenan and I used to have a hot dog, and the, the security guard would sneak it into us. But Burns, he caught us one night. So the hot dogs were good. Now, the Montreal <laughs> Forum was another. For me, it's a, the original six buildings, the best buildings to play in the Boston Garden, Toronto Maple Leaf Gardens. The Montreal Forum is just special, though. I mean, there's so much history there and so many championships and Stanley cups and everything. And then the, the, all the hall of fame players had played there. And you mentioned it, a lot of them were sitting right behind the bench. And yeah. um, I remember our uh, president, Ronald Corey was right behind the bench all the time too. And, and even uh, like you said, the prime minister and his family were, would be there. So it was, it was pretty cool. It uh, could be nerve wracking at the time having those hall of famers sitting behind rocket Richard was there. John Beliveau. Uh, <laughs> I mean, Cornwallier and shut. They coached me one year uh, in Montreal, but uh, they were always at the game. They're always around the room. And that's what made it so special too for us. And they taught us a lot about off ice, about being good to the fans and not saying no to autographs or not saying no to taking a picture with a fan because they taught us how important the fans are. If, if it weren't for the fans, we wouldn't be playing the game we love to play and, and get paid to do it. So that's something they taught us as, as hockey players is to appreciate what you're doing and be humble and uh, you know be good to the fans because that's why they're there. But yeah, it was nerve wracking. I got thrown off the bench one night by Pat Burns because I slammed the gate two or three times when he called me off after a shift. And I had to put my tail between my legs and walk by them the one night. And that was probably the most embarrassing night of my 
my career in Montreal was walking by them all after I just got thrown off the bench in the middle. Oh. Of, I think it was the middle of the, the uh, second period. Uh, and he threw me off the bench and told me to get off, take my gear off. Luckily, uh, Larry, you mentioned Larry Robinson. He came in the room and uh, I remember I was sitting in the back where we used to cut our sticks and curve them and stuff. And I watched him walk through the hallway. He went the other way down to Pat's uh, office. Pat Burns was the coach at the time. And I guess he went and talked to Pat and then he came to me and says, put your gear back on. So uh, Larry Robinson saved me that night and saved me a little bit more embarrassment to have to talk to the media after and just tell them why I missed the rest of the whole game. So it was pretty cool, but it was embarrassing. You had to walk by all the legends and uh, the, the president of your company, or, uh, <laughs> president of your team. There was a company back there was Molson. So it was a company too. So some of the former players that we've talked to, they, they talk about the difference between today's players and coaches compared to, you know, back from the eighties and the seventies is, you know, if you screwed up or you pissed off the coach, you bench, you didn't play and, yeah. and you, you made a mistake. That was it. You take your punishment, you keep your mouth shut and yeah. you prepare for the next shift whenever that is. But today it seems like, you know, Oh, Hey Shane, you know, next time you're out there, don't do this. <laughs> Look at the video. You see how you got to. Yeah. I, I think mean, it, you, do you agree you're with right. That? Yeah, I, I do. I mean, I mean, the, the players nowadays and young kids that play hockey and play sports, they're so talented and skilled. And I mean, the hockey players now are so strong and in great shape and can skate like the wind, but the game's definitely, definitely changed for sure. And I mean, it's a, it's a big business now, man. They're make, making a lot of money now. Right. And, and they deserve it. Good for them. I'm happy for them. I don't regret that, you know, what, that they're making the money they're making and if they make as much as you possibly can. But I think that's changed the, uh, the way things are dealt with nowadays in hockey in the day, they would just send you to the minors or sit you out or bench you, like you said, or, or, or get somebody else to take your place because we were all making basically the same amount of money. I mean, there was a, maybe a few guys on each team that were making a little bit more because they've been there for 10, 12 years and you know, the superstars of your team. But nowadays guys are making a lot more money than, uh, you know, most of the GMs are and, and most of the coaches are. So sometimes it's easier to replace the coach and the, the coaches are walking on eggshells a little bit uh, and afraid to say too much. And, and uh, I think that's probably why it's changed. But, but it's definitely like you didn't say a whole heck of a lot when you got benched or were told to, uh, you know, go to the dressing room and take your gear off. You just did yeah. what you were told. <laughs> yeah. You wait, you wait for one of your veteran players to save you. But, yeah, especially being a younger guy, right? I remember coming in the league. I didn't say a whole heck of a lot in the dressing room. I kept my mouth shut and did what I was told. Uh, nowadays, guys are coming in and uh, having more to say and being more vocal at a young age. And in a way, good for them. I mean, uh, you can be a leader and be a big part of your team right away. That's great. But. We knew in the day that uh, we were to keep our mouth shut unless we were asked something or and just go and do our job. So uh, one, another story I just wanted to get your reaction to uh, is the famous 1987 playoffs. You know, you uh, you have some strange, you already talked about it, some strange pregame rituals. And uh, so playoff versus Philly, Chico Resch is not happy with you. And I think it was, was it Lemieux that? Uh, yeah, that was Pepe. Claude Lemieux, Pepe, we called him. Yeah, it was Pepe. So uh, talk about antagonizing he, the other team. Uh, oh my God. But Pepe antagonized his own teammates, sometimes. <laughs> but, <laughs> but he was one of the best at it. Right. That's why you loved him on your team. And he was a great guy, a good player. Um, but yeah, we had this little thing we did. And it was the same playoff that prop that Shelly hit prop. And then Haxel went flying out after Shelly in one of the games because of the prop hit and wanted to kill Shelly and was swinging his stick at him. Almost took Shelly's head off. But yeah, we had this little thing. We started it before the playoffs. We might even start this during the season where, Either I'd give the puck to Pepe after all the everybody's got off the ice. It was just us two on the ice. And again, no, no referees at that time. They were still in their civvies, right? So I'd, I'd either grab the puck 
or he'd have a puck and I'd give it to him and he'd throw it in the open net. And yeah, it pissed off Chico Rush and the Flyers quite a bit. So they turned their net around. So we went down and turned the net back around and did our little thing again and went off the ice. And then we went to do it to the third night, I believe it was at the forum. And uh, we went out, we just finished doing it. All of a sudden we hear a, roar, a bunch of roar, a big roar and like, cause there was fans already there. We look over and there's Chico Rush and Ed Hospital are flying out after us. And I don't know why they did it. They didn't really come near me. They went after Peppy, <laughs> grabbed Peppy and had Peppy down. I'm like sitting there and I felt bad because I wanted to jump in. I wasn't sure what to do. I didn't want to get suspended. And Peppy was kind of covered up because I know he didn't want to get suspended. And, and tell you what, Peppy could take care of himself too, but I knew what he was thinking. He didn't want to get suspended. Chico Rush was our backup goalie in hospital. And I don't even think he even dressed. And we kind of felt earlier in, in the warm-up or something odd. They had about 30 guys dressed because back then you could dress as many guys as you, as you wanted in the warm-up, right? But we only had like a probably a couple extra guys from what we were gonna we were actually gonna play. They had about thirty guys. So now looking back, we knew what they were doing. They wanted to have more guys than we did, so they could make it to us a bit. But <laughs> anyways, I remember trying to look in the, and then I started going in to go in to grab them. And then Pepe's going, no, 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 Steve, don't do that in a French accent, uh, Tabernacle, stay out. So I stayed out, went on, and all of a sudden people poured out of both restrooms. Guys, were, I guess people were telling them there's shit going on in the ice, and there was. They all came out. Some guys came out with uh, Brown came out with no equipment on the top. Knuckles Nyland had to fight him, had yep. nothing to grab onto. And Knox never backed down from anybody. I watched Knox fight Dave Brown when he played in, in when we played in Philly one night, three times. He, he's just one of the toughest mother, whatever I've ever played with in my entire life. But yeah, they got, it got ugly. And that's probably that and the Boston one were two of the scariest brawls I've ever been in because there was guys that were no gear on. Some guys were in flip flops. And all our guys had came out, but they had, they had a set number because they had dressed, they knew what they were doing. They had planned what they were going to do. So they dressed way more guys for the warm-up than, the, than normally. So they had extra guys out there against us. But I mean, there was four or five guys that squared off and fought. And, and I mean, that went on forever too. And I mean, like I mentioned, Knox fought, Mike McPhee fought Tockett. I think I fought somebody. I can't remember if it was Knackbar, maybe it was somebody else. I can't remember. And then me and Tockett squared off again, but then, Speaking of guys with a lot of respect, like Larry and, and Bob Ganey had a lot of respect for me, the, even the Flyers, other, the other team. And Larry finally grabbed a couple of guys and strung them out because he was nails too. Like he, he was tough, tough, tough. <laughs> he didn't do it very often, but when he did it, look out. But he just finally strung a couple of guys out. He said, enough's enough. And kind of that's when everybody kind of came to and said, you know, what are we doing out here? Because like I said, there's guys that are flip-flops, could have lost toes. There's guys fighting. The referees were standing over on the, on the, the boards. On the other side, across from where we went off, on the Philadelphia side, taking numbers down. And names down, but they couldn't do anything else. They couldn't come out, couldn't stop no. it. So it only ended when Larry did that. And it wow. finally ended. And then you know what? It was because it was like the conference finals, because I think Philly went on to play Edmonton in the finals that year. And Hexel actually won the, the con smite that year because we outshot them every game. But we ended up losing to them. But I think, I don't think one person got thrown out or got suspended from that whole, that brawl, not one. And I think it's because they knew that they start throwing out three or four guys from each team, it's going to hurt you know, the teams and it's such an important, it's conference finals. You're going to the Stanley cup. So, and that's how things have changed though. I mean, there'll be a ton of suspensions guys showing up to that game, but I don't, I don't think anybody missed the game to be honest that night. So you're the reason why uh, they now have an enforcer that during pregame warmup, they, there's job is to patrol the red line, right? Is, is, no, that was always, that was always in there. We've, we had many, we had many nights where there was, Guys cruising the blue line or the red line. Then they they go over. You try to go over a couple feet just to like piss off the other team a little bit. And then their enforcer come flying over, go five feet over, or you get a two hander. I mean, I heard some of the 
some crazy things said in, in the, in the warmups, but I remember Lyle Odeline came up for the minors and Lyle Odeline wasn't the biggest guy, but he was from out West too. And nails like tough as nails. And Dave Brown, I remember we're in Philadelphia and I don't know why, but we always had a couple players pull groins just before we went into Philadelphia to play the, the Flyers. Cause they were like the Bruins Bruins and Flyers were two of the toughest teams. I don't know why, but we always had a couple of guys get pulled groins when we were going to play the Flyers or the Bruins. <laughs> so we called Lyle Odeline up, and Dave Brown's skating around. He's got about an inch of Vaseline on his face for warm-up, Dave Brown, right? Because the guys wore Vaseline back in the day when they fought because they thought it would protect them from getting cut and stuff, and then the fist would slide off. They had all crazy kinds of things, fixed their jerseys. Totally different game back then. <laughs> and there's Lyle Odeline, you're uh, chirping at Dave Brown, and, and we, I, I, I watch him a couple times, and I scared him go, Odie, what are you doing? Leave him alone. Don't piss him off. He's going to kill somebody. Like, just let him sleep, right? But, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that that cruising the red line was always there in the day. It was always – now they talk at the red line. They kneel down and stretch and talk a lot before the game. I don't understand that because we, we didn't like each other a whole lot back in the day. And there were so many things that got started in warm-ups and stick swing and arguments and fights and then fighting because, in the game because they figured out in the warm-up, okay, we're going to go tonight, and that's what happened. But – we, I think the rule, one of the rules that did change after that, or not too long after that, was they had they have referees out in the warm up, right? Now they have referees out there in the warm up all the time. So I think that's one of the rules that it's probably a good idea. Probably a good idea. Yes. <laughs> There's There's a lot of putting you back in the '80s and your prime and everything. Honestly, is there anybody in today's NHL? And Darren Banks laughed at this question by the way. Asked, is there anybody in today's NHL that could give you a run for your money in a fight? today's players and you're in your primes or anybody at all um i i'd say there's a couple to be honest i mean i i would fight anybody i don't i wouldn't call i wouldn't i wasn't a heavyweight but i, would, I fought most of the heavyweights in my career because i just my personality was not to say i couldn't say no really it was hard for me and not only that if i seen a teammate uh get run i'd be there for him and and i mean lou cheech's nails lou cheech is tough you guys know him from boston that guy can that guy is strong as a bull and can fight and yeah. And uh, had some great years in Boston. And then I'm a little biased. Tom Wilson in Washington is a friend of, a good friend of my son's. I mean, I know a lot of people probably in Boston too hate Tommy Wilson. Oh yeah. <laughs> but, but, and, and, and a lot of other teams, but I'm biased with my friend, my son's really good friends with him. Like he's at the house a lot and I've got to know Tommy and actually Dylan played each other all the way up here in Toronto. And I hated him when we played, played them as kids, like when Dylan and him were playing, but I've got to know him off the ice and, they've become really, really good friends. He's such a great kid off the ice and such an, a humble kid. And he plays the game the way it was played back in the day a lot. I mean, and, and, and he does back it up too. He'll drop his gloves and he's, he's a big, strong kid. His brother, I mean, his brother, Pete's even tougher. His brother, Pete's even bigger rugby player. And he's, he's crazier, crazier than Tommy is. So I wouldn't want to mess with Pete at all. Thank God they're friends of ours, but I'd, I'd say Tommy for sure too. Um, uh, he, he, he's a pretty tough kid. And I like the way he plays. I mean, uh, I wasn't, I, I can't say I didn't cross a line sometimes too. Uh, and that's just was our, the way we were wired. I mean, we'd cross a line a little bit more in the old days than we do the kids do nowadays. So I think it, it stands out more that when Tommy does it now or one of some other player does it, cause not many guys go over the line or go to that line as, as often. So I'd say those two guys probably for sure. So did you have a, especially when you're in the OHL and then going to the NHL, I mean, obviously you're, you're, more known as a power forward and you weren't afraid to drop the gloves and everything, especially guys now like Tom Wilson who can play and fight. Yeah. Did you have a hard time finding that balance between being a good disciplined player, chipping in and producing, but then also 
dropping the gloves. I mean, like you were expected, you like expected yeah. to. You know, the funny thing is, it wasn't really expected me because I was a first rounder, but, and, and funny thing is, Pat Burns had many meetings with me and got mad at me quite often for fighting so much and especially fighting uh, some of the heavyweights. Um, actually, a lot of the coaches had talked to me about that. They didn't want me fighting the heavyweights. They wanted me to, you know, I fought Cam Neely once and that's my claim to fame because he, he, he was bleeding all over after the fight, but I have to be honest and tell everybody and all the Bruins fans, he was already cut. He already had a, uh, a cut and had a bunch of stitches. I think I just rubbed it or something or my hand rubbed it and knocked the stitches out and he started bleeding and it looked like that I did it in the fight, but I have to be honest because I have so much respect for Cam Neely as a, I don't know him really well as a person, but I know he's a great person, but as a hockey player, he's one of my favorite players to watch and to play against. But um, I, yeah, I had a, I had a bit of a hard time uh, finding that balance. I mean, I think I, I should have, you know, maybe said no and shied away from the fighting because I did quite a bit. I was always in the, I mean, one year, I think my rookie year, I had 50-something games. I had 19 fights. I don't think they expected that, me, to, me to do that as a rookie. Right? I ended up breaking my jaw that year, too. But, um, I mean, I could have probably – I think it hurt me because, you know, you're pretty sore. Your hands and everything else were sore for weeks after fighting, especially when you're fighting 19, 19 times, I think 59 games. So I have so much respect for the fighters, the guys that did that, and that was their main job. I mean, they, they had the toughest job in hockey. I think I could have probably uh, – you know, put better numbers up if I would have stayed away from it as, uh, as, as much as I did. Well, stayed away from it more than I did, but I mean, I have no regrets. That was part of my game. That's who I was. That's how I was wired. And I, I had a tough time skating away or saying no, but yeah, I think, uh, if I look back, if I, I wish I would have been a little bit more dis- disciplined in that, that area for sure. Well, and speaking of your fractured jaw, I had read <laughs> earlier too. I, I don't remember the exact year it was, but it had said you had fractured your jaw in a fight. And then five days later, you got into another fight and even did even worse damage to your jaw. I mean, what, what, yeah. what would you do? That's pretty crazy. That's something that would never happen in today's game for sure. Yeah. You know what? I know I, 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 I had fought uh, Paul McDermott. I think he was in Hartford uh, and I actually sk- skated in the summer with Paul McDermott. He was quite a bit older than me, but uh, I, I'd skate with him. I was like 15, 16. I'll never remember. I'll never forget it. I, I skated in Barry with these guys, the NHL guys. I was only 15 or 16 at the time. He was a big, strong guy and I had to fight them in Hartford. I remember my jaw was really sore for like, you know, two weeks after that, but I, we never really got a diagnose. I thought there might be something wrong with it, but I mean, I just kept playing and I didn't want to say too much. It was my first year and, <laughs> and, and looking back now. And, and then, then I fought Kurt Fraser, who, I mean, that guy was, I thought I, was, I thought he was hitting me with suitcase. I thought he had two suitcases in his hand every time he hit me. I remember my, was on TV, my dad and my mom seen it. They came down the next day. So they had heard, obviously I broke my jaw, but. Uh, when he walked into the hospital and he had seen it on TV, he goes, I knew you were hurt on TV. I didn't go down, but I mean, I remember going to the bench. I was spitting teeth out and, and swallowing some chipped teeth. I never lost a full, why well, I, I lost one full one, but the rest were chipped. But the doc said that he felt that it probably would have, because after knowing that I was sore for a couple of weeks, they said it probably might've been fractured before that fight. And then, you know, Frazier hit me with suitcases. Every time he hit me, might've did it right. Cause it was broken in two spots, but. Yeah, it was pretty, one of the toughest things I've ever been through was a, a broken jaw. And then I broke it again. I got sti- I got a stick, my own stick across my chin and broke it again. But the second <laughs> time wasn't as, wasn't as bad as the, the first. The first time was pretty, pretty bad. I had to eat through a straw for like, like six weeks. And uh, yeah, I lost a bunch of weight. Thank God for my mom. She went through a bunch of blenders and blended all my food up. So I, st- I stayed as heavy as I possibly could. And the, 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 the team was actually unbelievable. They let me go home for that period so I could stay and have somebody take care of me and make sure I was drinking my shakes. But yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty crazy. 
Wow. You were uh, you were part of the 98 uh, Olympic Canadian team. So, I mean, yeah. you're playing with Gretzky, Iserman, uh, uh, Lindros, who's a favorite of mine only because it, we, sh we don't have the same last name, but it sounds like it. So people would say, hey, do you know Eric Lindros? And I'll be like, oh, yeah, he's my cousin. <laughs> but it's for yeah. sure. Yeah, anyway, her names are spelled uh, and, and Ray Bork. So um, not talking about the dreaded, you know, I mean, we can, you know, I, the shootout. Yeah, I, know yeah I mean, I mean, it is what it is. I don't think anybody has a reason why you don't put Gretzky in there. But besides that, what was your agree? I agree. I agree with you. <laughs> what, what is your experience with uh, just being on the Olympic team, being in the Olympics? Oh, man. Um, yeah, well, you, you mentioned playing with Gretzky. I was lucky enough in 1991 to play in the Canada Cup. So I, my line mate was Gretzky and Steve Larmer, who Larmer is one of the most underrated players I've ever played with in my entire career. He was my roommate during the Canada Cup. Um, and Gretzky's just, he's special. He's become a good friend and he's just a class, class act and one of the greatest players and um, one of the greatest people I've ever met outside of hockey too. And he's so good to people. And he, and he learned from the best, his dad, Walter, God rest him. He's another great person, but just branching the, the shoot, I got to touch on a bit. We were all shocked too that he didn't get picked. I mean, greatest player ever to play the game and most best offensive player ever to play the game and doesn't get, doesn't get picked to go in the shoot. I think we're all shocked, but he handled it with class like he always did and, and everything that he did in the game of hockey. And as a person just handled it with class and, you know, said it was the, the coach's uh, decision. And I mean, you know, probably in private, he wasn't the happiest. He probably was surprised he didn't get picked too, but you know, we had to move on from that, but the experience itself, I say that it was the, my best experience in my hockey career. It was the first year to let NHL guys or professionals play in it. And uh, just the experience itself to, to be, to live in the village, uh, to hang out with all the other athletes from all the other countries in Canada and, and just see how hard they work though, to get to do their event and have to do that and work hard and, and work jobs. We realized how lucky we were and for them to open their arms and, and let us into their world and, and treat us just with, uh, so much respect too, because it could have been, Oh, look at these guys, NHL guys coming in, paid guys, professionals, blah, blah, blah. No, they were unbelievable. And they supported us through the, the tournament. We got to go watch their, their events and be a part of their events. And just thinking though about how hard they worked and it could have been over in a second. It could fall if they were skating. Yeah. Um, I mean, it could be over in a split second with their events and they've worked so hard and they have to work, work jobs to, to get there too. So learn a lot from that, but just being in the, the village, opening ceremonies, closing ceremonies, meeting all the other athletes from other countries, eating all kinds of different foods and just hearing the stories. It was just an incredible, incredible experience. But for me, it was just the part that I realized how lucky I was to play a sport that I love to get paid to do it when all these other athletes are amateurs and they work years to get to do, uh, participate in their particular event. And it could be over that quickly and they don't get paid to do it. So it was pretty cool. Uh, and then obviously losing in uh, to the, Ch the uh, Chuck team in the shootout was probably one of the biggest disappointments of my career. So it was, uh, it was good and bad, but for me, it was one of the most uh, greatest, best experiences I've ever had. And that's because of, I, I thank all the other athletes for that because they made it special for all of us. So you were, you were a roommate with, uh, with Flory, but also uh, Bork. So our yep. Boston, our Boston fans, <laughs> Give us nothing but shit if we didn't ask for a Ray Bork story. Oh, God. I mean, so our room was Ray Bork, uh, myself, Theron Fleury, and uh, Keith Primo. So we all know Fleury's story because he's, he's wrote a book about it. And, and then I'm somewhere in between probably him and, and Primo. Uh, 
Keith Primo, that is. And Keith was a hell of a player too. I, I actually, and I fought him when he was in Detroit, but like Borky was like our dad. Like he just, <laughs> he was unbelievable. I mean, he was like, uh, it's, it's just, it's so those, about those tournaments, going to those tournaments, about to play with all these superstar players that are like heroes and superstars, just to see how humble they are and how they, how they handle themselves. And I mentioned Gretz is one of the, well, Ray Bork for me is one of the classiest human beings I've ever met in my entire life. And uh, I've got to know him uh, and did a few events with him since, since the Olympics and obviously roomed him. So I got, you know, pretty close to him during that time. And he's just one of the nicest per- people ever, but he was like our dad because Theo was like quite like, like, you know, the story. And then yeah. I'm somewhere in between. And, and then Keith was really quiet, quiet guy. But I mean, I, I'll, I'll never forget uh, after the Olympics, I mean, he was so good to me. I mean, I went to Montreal and he was in there with his wife and we went out for dinner one night and just had the time of our life. And I know he, Borky loves to sing and loves to dance and his wife loves to dance. And we just had, I'll never forget that night in Montreal. We went out and, you know, he was singing and having a good time and, and uh, his wife was dancing and we were all dancing. He was dancing. We just had just a super, just a normal guy. And that's what I, re- I realized. I mean, I hated the Boston Bruins. I played against them and uh, hate's a strong word. I mean, I just, I mean, but back then it was, we did really did in a way, but never really hated a player, but I just didn't like him a lot. Right. Back any of the Bruins back then and, and Orky being one of them, cause he was such a great player and Cam Neely being one of them. But uh, to get to know Ray after was just a, an honor for me to get to know the guy because he just, and I learned a lot from Ray Bork, how he, t- he treated people and how he was just a normal, humble person. And he's such, he, he's just like the Montreal Canadian guys that I met, the guys that are the hall of famers. And it's no wonder he was so successful in life and in hockey. And uh, um, I just remember him being so good to me that night out in Montreal and his family and his, and having so much fun and just saying like, like that's Ray Bork, but he's just a normal guy, which is incredible. Awesome. Well, so you captained two NHL teams during your career and especially now, um, you know, with teams like the Ottawa Senators and, and even the Red Wings, I know they just named Dylan Larkin the captain. You know, some of the teams that have that vacancy spot, obviously being the captain of an NHL team comes with a lot of expectations. So back when you became the captain, what, what were the expectations? Did the role change for you? I mean, did you have to, like, do more, show up to practice before everybody? Did you already do that or – no, I don't think it really changed. I mean, I think every every player that's made it to NHL is probably an assistant captain to captain somewhere throughout their career, right? So I think they're all leaders, to be honest, because you don't get to the NHL unless you're a leader at some point in your career or always in your career. Uh, so I don't think a letter or, or makes a difference whether you're a leader or not. But there's obviously different responsibilities as a captain. Uh, but I was lucky enough to play for, with Bob Ganey and Larry Robinson. Again, I'll mention those two guys. And again, Wayne Gretzky. Uh, Mark Messier was with our, our team on the, on the Canada cup team. And that, that's something that I, I know why the, the Oilers were so successful. They obviously had an enormous amount of talent and skill and everything. And that's why they won so many championships, but I'll tell you what, they made every person on a team feel just as important as the next. I mean, the first the guy, the guy that was playing 30 minutes or the guy that was playing maybe not, or not even playing black aces. They made every guy that was part of that organization feel part of it. I think that's so important for the leaders to make everybody feel happy and feel a part of it because you never know we're going to need those guys if somebody if there's an injury or something they're gonna to have to step in and maybe play a key role down the road so for me I learned so much from those guys and obviously you got to just come to the rink and and work hard and uh and be the and don't ask somebody uh, something to do something that they, you're not willing to do yourself and that's why I mean that's why I fought I'll be honest and fought sometimes when probably shouldn't have but I I wouldn't ask somebody on my team to do something and I always wanted to stick up for my teammates so I thought that was part of being a 
being a leader too, but I wouldn't ask anybody to do something that I wouldn't do. And I, I believe in my heart that the biggest thing was, you know, work, working hard in the practice and, and working hard in the games and trying to do the right thing, play the right way in the games. I tried to play a complete game, but the biggest thing for me was to make everybody feel part of it and feel special and, and just as important as the next guy. You're a three-time All-Star. And when we were talking to Proper when he was on the air, he talked about um, when he was, you know, in All-Star games, early 80s with Phil Esposito, Bobby Clark, that they took those games seriously. And today, you got players opting out. They don't want to go to the All-Star game. It's like 20 to 2. It's like my beer league hockey scores. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, what was it like your experiences for you in the All-Star game? I mean, like I said, to be able to go to those games, I just felt honored and lucky, you know, to be honest, to be there with some of those players and be on the ice with them. At times I'd have to, you know, like pinch myself and say, you're on the ice with some of the greatest players to, to play the game. And same thing in the Olympics and the Canada Cup. Um, but the experience was just incredible. And I was lucky enough to share one of them with my father. He passed away when he was 45, but he got to go to the one in Pittsburgh with me. So that was pretty, pretty fun to go down there and spend the weekend with him. And he got the chance to meet some of his the people that he loved watching play hockey. So it was pretty, pretty cool. But yeah, they, they were pretty competitive back in the day. They wanted to win. They wanted to win the, the games for sure. And you just can't take that part of it. I play my, I play with guys, like you mentioned, beer league. I play in charity events. You can't take that out of us. We want to win. Even though I want to win those games too. Like it's a charity event and I'm out there going hundred miles an hour wanting to win. And, and when we don't win, I'm pissed off to be honest, but um, yeah, it was just, it's just an incredible thing to be a part of. So and like when, I said, to be a, be a part of it with those those guys and to share it with those guys, but they they wanted to win. They always every time they stepped on the ice, that they didn't have a, an off switch. And nowadays, I think they have a bit of an off switch. And I think I think again, it's the business now part of it that's kind of changed that a bit too, and the money and all that stuff, and guys getting hurt and worried about getting hurt and that. We really didn't think about those things back in the day. And and like I said, those guys wanted to win every time they stepped on the ice, whether it was a scrimmage or a game. So was was your dad the type of dad that was? <clears throat> more of a quiet dad uh, of if he had something to say, he would say it, or was he more of a more vocal dad, uh, like a typical hockey coach dad? I mean, uh, I think he would, he asked for me to not, not just in hockey. He said, if you're going to do something, you know, give it your best and work your hardest. And that's all you can ask for yourself. You know, so that's all you really, he always instilled that into me saying, work hard or whatever you're going to do. Uh, you got to enjoy it though. And uh, if he felt I wasn't working hard enough at something or doing it, not working hard, he, he would tell me that. Now, he wasn't wasn't one to yell and scream it, but he would say, you know what, you got to you got to work harder if you want to be this is what you want to do. And you want to and you want to make it to the NHL work hard. He would tell me that at whatever I was doing, if I was going to do something, you might as well you might as well go hard and do it 100 percent. Right. Or you're not going to be successful. But he also made it very fun and enjoyable and was always there for support. And when I didn't have good games or was going through a tough time. He was already always there for me to give me advice and to try to help me. So, I mean, he wasn't one of those uh, dads that would be yelling and screaming at me, but I mean, if I deserved a kick in the butt, I was going to get a kick in the butt. I know it's changed nowadays. Uh, you get in trouble for doing that stuff. And you know, obviously there, there's reasons why I guess they've changed it. Um, but um, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say he was one of those guys that was yelling and screaming at me all the time, but they were always there. My mom was probably harder on me than my, my dad. She's oh, really? still around, but oh yeah. But she, she, she was harder on me than, than my dad. My dad was giving it to me. And I, I thought I'd have my mom for the soft, span, uh, soft spot to land, but she told me to get out of the car and walk home. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. So can you take a uh, so they drove about so, so they drove about 10 feet away, and then they opened the door and they said, get back in. We, will, we won't make you walk home. <laughs> oh, so can you take us through the moment back in the late 90s when you and Darcy Tucker tried to 
fight your way into the devil's locker room. I don't think I know this. I had a bunch. I had some people on Twitter ask about that. Yeah, I think that might have been might have been it might have been could have been the two. It might have been two thousand that year. Um, yeah, we we did some crazy things. My brother in law and I we we're pretty tight. We live like five six doors apart. I mean, you see him like he gets things. He, he he's pretty good. He's another he can he can shit the stir pretty good too with the best of him. He's another Kenny Lensman. Yeah. You know, Claude Lemieux. You know, he can get this shit going and then. Uh, he winds people up and then he, he can't turn. He's another guy that can't turn off either. He's more old school too, right? You Once the, once the uh, switch is gone, he ain't turning back. So, yeah, I think we tried to go after some guys in the Jersey Devil, Devil's Room and obviously security and there were people that didn't let us get in there. But And probably good for us. We might have got we might have got our uh, clocks cleaned in there, the two of us. But, I mean, I that's not the first time I did that, though. I actually did a lot, one a lot worse. Went after Ed Jovanovski. We got thrown out of the game in Vancouver. And uh, that switch went off for me. And I went right... I went right, it was at the new building. So the dress rooms are way far away from each other. The benches are away. But I went through our hallway, down to the back hallway, down to where their hallway was, past security, past everybody. People were back there. There was media guys back there. And I went down their hallway and I ended up, and when I finished my blackout, I looked down, there was a Vancouver Canucks emblem. I was sitting in the, standing in the Vancouver Canucks dress room, yelling at Jovo, Jovanovski, who've gotten on a bit too, uh, wanting to fight him in the dress room. But Todd Bertuzzi was hurt and was in civvies that night. And then there was a kid that worked for the Canucks. It was our trainer. He was actually a stick boy in Hamilton. They stopped me from like fighting Jovo and Jovo wasn't worried about it. Jovo was nails and tough as tough as nails too, an old school hockey player. But I just find it like, imagine how many games I would get if I went into somebody else's dress room nowadays. So that was, we actually, I got into that dress room. We didn't get into the devil's dress room. We were fight trying to get our way into it, but we didn't make it. Thank God. I think, I think we would have been in some trouble. <laughs> So as we start to wrap this up, um, we do want to talk a, a little bit about you're, you're one of the most um, effective spokespersons for mental health. And, you know, this whole year and a half has obviously sucked for everybody. And a lot of people are struggling with a lot of different things. And I think everybody has um, immediate family members that struggle with a lot of different issues, whether it's coping skills, whether it's um, you know, things that uh, you might have to take some medication to regulate some brain chemistry or whatever uh, the case may be. So um, you're known as this tough ass, you know, tough, badass hockey player, which you are, but you also share about your struggles with um, anxiety, uh, depression, panic attacks yeah. that um, uh, affect you. And, you know, and you suffered through it in your career, I think, yeah. towards the end of the Toronto um, I think that was like 2003. And while the media might have not have been completely honest, you take 2021, I think people would understand exactly that you're a human being and, hey, you've got to do what you got to do best for you and your family and, you know, screw, a, you know, a playoff series if that's what it takes to get you, uh, you know, to feeling that you you can deal with everything. So, yeah. Um, the locker room is, I mean, what, the biggest macho environment uh, that there ever is. How do you yeah. navigate that when you're just, you know, you can't just say, oh, I get some anxiety to the players, but I'm sure they're all going through the same thing, but nobody wants to talk about it or no one wants to talk to the degree of severity. I don't know. Yeah, it's, you're right. That's that's why I hit it for years. I mean, I didn't, I, I tried to deal with it on my own. And that was the, the biggest, now I know it was the biggest mistake I made. I should have dealt with it early on it wouldn't have got to the point that it got to uh and i mean saying that 
you're right. The toughest thing I've ever done in my hockey career was leaving the playoffs because I love the play. I love playoff hockey and I love the game of hockey. So to leave at that point, but I know, I know, and I knew then that if I didn't do it, then I might not be sitting here talking to you today. So there was two choices. I either go get help or I'm not around. Uh, you know, I'll be honest. There was times where I thought about committing suicide or jumping off of one of my buddy's balconies or doing something, taking pills or something. And I mean, lucky enough, I had the support and the people to turn to when I left the game of hockey, you know, the league, the NHL was, the NHLPA was good and the alumni and I had some good doctors uh, around the Leafs that helped me. Uh, and obviously my family, you know, my wife, my kids and my, my sisters, and my mom uh, and, and some good friends that helped me. So I was lucky, but you're right. We, we, we were, we thought we were these big, tough, badass hockey players. And that's why I talk about it because it can affect anybody. It can touch anybody. And uh, I want to let people know that it's okay to talk about it. It's okay to ask for help and it's okay not to be okay. And you're going to have uh, different things that are going to affect you and you're going to have different emotions. And you said it, find that the, the skills or the, the coping skills are so important, but the first step is to realize you need help. And, and then the second step is to, to not be afraid or shy or embarrassed to ask for that help. Now, um, I'm sure, I mean, when you're playing, you don't, you're not going to go to a trainer. I mean, I look at some of the documentaries for the players, I mean, the teams, and they have special chefs preparing, you know, teaching these young kids how to make <laughs> meals and all this stuff. And I'm sure they're getting any help. Uh, but back when you're playing, I mean, what do you do? Go to the train? What are you going to do? Throw an ice pack on your head? I mean, uh, <laughs> back in the day, back in the day, it was like, yeah, Tylenol or Advil and an ice pack and get back at it the next night, right? There was, and the, you know, the concussion thing has come a long way and they've understand a lot more, which I, I think is very important. But back in the day, we didn't know what concussions were. We just have a headache and lost our memory for a bit and we're back out there the next shift. I mean, I remember at Hartford one night, I don't remember playing the third period. I play, I got hit in the, in the second period. I don't remember going off the ice for the intermission or playing the third period really. And then I was having a couple beers and and had some Advil on the plane for the, for the ride home. That's how we dealt with things back there. And it's nobody's fault. It's just, it's, it's, that's the way it was back then. It's changed a lot. I think it's, again, the business part of it. They have to take care. Uh, they understand they have to take care of the players. And, and, uh, it's, and, and I'm happy that it has. It's changed a lot in a lot of ways. Uh, I mean, it's come a long ways with the mental health side of it, with people speaking out and talking more about it. I'm not afraid to talk about it. I still think there's room to improve in all areas of life, not just hockey. Uh, I think we, we can we can do more for people who are suffering with anxiety, panic attacks, depression, mental health illness, period. Uh, and that's why I talk about it as much as I possibly can. But it's it's definitely it's definitely changed over time for the for the better. And like I said, I think there's still room to, to go, but they've done a lot better job uh, in the NHL for sure. So if you don't have the resources and you don't have the help, obviously people are going to continue to. Uh, try to do what they can to make themselves feel better. And for you, if I, and correct me if I'm wrong, you know, you, you started getting into some severe alcohol and popping out of van like, candy. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was, uh, uh, that's how I, I self-medicated. Right. Uh, I mean, the panic attacks and anxiety and stuff there, you're one way of out is having some drinks and then you, it turns into more drinks and it's more and more drinks as time goes on. Uh, but the, the one that really affected me was the out of van. I mean, I started taking out of van. And uh, I was getting up to like, there was, I was taking a, quite a few a day. Like uh, I wasn't taking one or two or three a day. I was taking a lot uh, and it was bad. And Ativan's very addictive and I couldn't get enough of it at one point. So that's what I mean by the, I eventually knew that uh, at that time I knew I needed to go get the help or I might not be around because I might either just, you know, commit suicide or I might die of alcohol and, and Ativan mixture because it could happen very easily or just too many Ativan uh, or a number of things could happen to myself. So 
um, that's how I, I did it. I self-medicated myself and uh, uh, it's not the thing to do. I mean, like you mentioned earlier and you're right, everybody's different. Everybody um, gets treated differently. And that's something else you gotta understand. You gotta find what works for you and you gotta find the person that uh, can help you the best. Cause I didn't feel comfortable with the first person I went to see, they made me feel awful. They were staring at me and I felt like I was being interrogated. Uh, so I had to switch. And that's when, uh, you know, I got uh, one of the doctors from uh, NHLPA started seeing me and he, he helped me immensely, but uh, sometimes you need medication to, to help you, but you have to do it properly. And that's what happened with me is when I finally went to get the help, my doc and I was lucky enough to, you said to have support and had a couple of docs that helped me. Uh, they put me on medication one in the morning, one at night. Because when you start taking Ativan, then your brain starts to tell you you need more and more and more, and you just keep taking more and more and more. Well, before I would have a panic attack, he wanted me to have one in the morning. So my morning started off good, and I got to the, through the day, and then one later in the day. So I just stayed level, right? And then I slowly took myself off it. Now, not everybody will need, need that. Not everybody will need medi medication. But for me, the panic attacks were so bad that I couldn't, get, I couldn't stop them if I wasn't taking medication, especially after I had taken it so, for so long. So everybody's, everybody's different, but you know, you got to find what's, what works for you. And sometimes it's medication, sometimes seeing a psychiatrist, therapist, uh, whatever it is, or just your own doctor doing medita meditation, whatever it is, whatever you need to do. Right. But it's different for everybody. Well, my, my wife is a physician. She's a family doctor and yep. you know, she, especially over the, the last year or so, um, you know, she has noted a, a, a huge uptick of, um, uh, patients coming to her for mental health. And of course, she's a medical doctor and part of that's part of that, but yep. you know, she wants them to go see a counselor. But at least in America, if you don't have the insurance, you don't have the drug, right. you're not going to go. And she kind of right. she kind of struggles with trying to help them the best that she can while trying to stay within her right, you know, practice. Yeah, it's hard and, for them. Uh, yeah, it's it is it, it's it's tough. But well, we want to end this with a quick lightning round and try to end this with a positive. So whatever comes to your mind, Shane, uh, the first memory or whatever that it is, just respond to the question and we'll, we'll go where, where it goes. So here we go. And we're going to ask fast, but you don't have to just answer quickly. If you've got something you want to share or something funny, go right ahead. Perfect. All right. Your favorite player to play with. Uh, Chris Trials. Um, I mean, I, I, and then Wayne Gretzky, obviously, I, like I, I mentioned Wayne, I played with Wayne in the Canada Cup, I played with him in the Olympics, but Lynn Russell was my line mate in the Olympics. So I, I played with so many great players. I can't say it was my favorite player to play with. I'd have to say Chai was my favorite teammate because we were so close and we played together for four years and we were like uh, best buddies. We were together constantly. So I'd have to say him as my favorite teammate, favorite player to play with. I mean, there's so many great players. I, I feel lucky to play with some of the greatest players ever. Uh, play against Cam Neely. That's okay, awesome. that's that was, was going to be the say, next, what was next one. Players you don't want to play against. All right, Cam so, Neely. Cam Neely was one of the, my favorite players to play against. I mean, that guy was a great player. I mean, he did it all. Uh, he was tough. He played. He scored. Uh, great, great leader. Uh, but I mean, I just love playing against him because he battled hard. He uh, was a superstar, but he played hard. Toughest goalie to score on. Uh, Patrick Roy. I practiced <laughs> against him in the war, in, in practice every day, and he was. He hated getting scored against even practice. So, and I mean, I played with some great, I played some great goalies. Burroder was in our Olympic team. Uh, Eddie Belfort, Curtis Joseph, uh, Grant Fuhr, uh, Billy Ramford was unbelievable for us in the 91 Canada cup. But I mean, Patrick just took it to another level in the, in the playoffs, especially, but he was so darn competitive. That's what made him so great. And they all were competitive, but he was just at another level, but they were all great goalies. 
So out of everybody, it doesn't have to include the NHL, who threw the hardest punches in the fight? Oh, my God. I mean, Kurt Fraser, like I said, he, he wasn't like he, he – not a lot of people – if you mention Kurt Fraser, they won't think of him as a tough guy, but he was nails. And every time he hit me, it was like I, I swear he had – he was holding on two suitcases and he hit me. But um, you know who else hit me real hard? Uh, Lyndon Byers in Boston. He hit me with a really good uppercut one time in Montreal. And, uh, yeah, it, it uh, rolled my eyes back in my head pretty good. But I think he was holding me up, I think. But I I, <laughs> I, I don't think I went down, but I think I wanted to go down. But I think he was holding me up because he wanted to hit me again. What is the craziest or funniest thing ever to happen to you during a game? Craziest thing or, or, or funniest thing to happen? Well, the craziest thing is I got thrown off the bench in Montreal. <laughs> I mean, I'm in the middle of the game and my coach throws me off the bench and tells me to get undressed because I'm – um, I, sl- I slammed it. What happened is I, I thought it was a short shift. So I slammed the gate, me and Stefan Richie, we played together. So we used to do it a little bit. Just to, you know, the players, we let the coach know we weren't happy being a little bit, you know, we shouldn't have did that, but it was without yelling at the coach or saying the coach kind of like, it was a little extra hard close the door. He knew. Uh, and I guess the third time he thought it was enough. So he, he threw me off the bench. So to have to walk by, like you mentioned, all the hall of fame players and the president, Ronald Corey of our hockey team, it was pretty embarrassing, pretty crazy. So you just, that's the walk of shame for you. It was the walk of shame. Yeah. One of them. And, and, and today it would be like, Shane, please don't close the door so hard. <laughs> anyway, okay. Next. What was it? Next one. Which player got under your skin the most in the NHL? Oh God. I, I'll name two of them. Sean Avery and uh, oh. Matthew, Matthew Barnaby. But I, I and, and Linsman, I mentioned Linsman. He was good at it too, but the two guys, they got him in his skin the most for probably Avery and I only played against Avery not that much. Cause he was, yeah, he, I don't know how long he was in the league. And then he was in, I think he was in LA for a while. So we didn't play them that much, but, and then Barney, because he was in Buffalo and we, we, we played Buffalo a lot when I was in uh, Toronto and obviously in Montreal, but I got to become really good friends with Matthew Barnaby. He's a great solid guy and a really humble guy off the ice actually. So I've become really good friends with him, but yeah, those two guys for sure. This is a tough one. You can uh, be political on this and say a few, but favorite arena to play in? Oh, okay. Like I said, Montreal Forum for me because I, I played there for 10 years and uh, just the history behind the Montreal Forum and all the championships and seeing all those players that are, they're in the Hall of Fame, they're like their, their, their banners are on the, the ceiling was, was just amazing. But I'll, I'll be honest, it was like the, the, the original six, but I'll, I'll say this. My, my three favorites uh bar none are, are the forum the boston garden and the toronto maple leaf garden i love playing in boston because we had such a rivalry they had such a great team we had a good team so it was always a great game the fans felt like they're right you remember how steep it was at the boston garden so they oh, felt, yeah it was, right? it was, they felt like they're right on top of you so it was like they were all sitting on top of you at the games and then the toronto maple leaf gardens it was another uh story building but also being from Barry and, and loving the Maple Leafs growing up they were a great team uh, a great building to play in too and, and don't get me wrong Philadelphia was great to play in Chicago was an unbelievable stadium but those three are my top three by far so which NHL arena had the worst ice conditions oh it depends what time what time of year um I'd have to say early on probably uh Los Angeles what was it called the call was it called the Coliseum or something that the ring yeah. back then yeah. yeah, I'd have to say that they were one of the worst back in the day because, you know, the warm weather and everything, right? So until they figured it out, I would say that was one of the worst for sure. The, um, a, a lot of players, well, not a lot, but the players we talked to from the 80s, they, they hated the odd in Buffalo. 
They thought it was. I was going to actually, I was going to mention the odd, to be honest. That was probably my second pick, but I would say the Coliseum in LA. And then the odd wasn't great either. That was just, I just, to be quite frank, that was be one of my, I probably picked Buffalo and the odd to be my least favorite building to play in. Yeah, people don't like playing there. What, what, what was the problem? I don't know. I got to be politically correct here, but I didn't like the building. I didn't like the, I didn't like the ice. Um, I mean, it just, I don't know, just going in there. We were only in there and out of there most of the time too, right? Even in Montreal, we'd fly in and fly right out. Yeah. And even in Toronto, we, we used to bust to Buffalo when I was in Toronto and then bust sure. back home right after the game. So uh, yeah, I just, I don't know what it was. It was just something I didn't, we didn't like playing and playing in the odd. Poor Buffalo. Nobody wants yeah. to be in Buffalo, no. especially now. All right, last oh, man. Why would you right now, right? No. Uh, <laughs> favorite memory from your playing career or a favorite memory? Well, we've, we've talked about them, to be honest, because like, it's so easy. For me, it's um, getting drafted uh, to realize my dream. So I was getting drafted by the Montreal Canadiens at the Forum, but with my parents to share it with my mom and dad. That was one of my favorite moments in my life. And then I knew that I had a solid chance of realizing my dream to play in the NHL, NHL, which was the dream that I've had my whole life. Uh, Playing the Olympics was another one of my top experiences. Um, And then I'll be honest, signing in Toronto, putting the Maple Leaf jersey on. I mean, it was at the end of my career. And I know that uh, my game had to change when I played here in Toronto, but to put Daryl Sittler's, uh, who was one of my favorite uh, players, jersey on uh, here in Toronto uh, and to come home to finish my career was pretty cool. And uh, obviously playing, playing uh, alongside Wayne Gretzky and having him as a line mate and becoming a good friend are three of the, the greatest moments. I mean, you can look at all the, all the uh, personal stuff, goals and assists and, and penalty minutes, because <laughs> I like those two. Um, and all the all-star games uh, and the Canada Cups and the Olympics. Olympics are one, but it's the friendships and the memories that we created over our careers that uh, what stand out to me the most. And, uh, those, those things I'll never forget. Those, those, those things I'll hold on to the rest of my life. I really don't, you know, care about the goals and assists and stuff like that. I, just, I, I care about the friendships I made and the memories I created and being lucky enough to play the game to do it. Yeah. So I, I got to say, that's one thing about hockey gave me. It gave me memories and friendships that I'll have forever. Well, Shane, you, you, you're not only a hockey legend, uh, but you're just a, a genuinely nice guy. You do so much off the ice and uh, that goes, certainly doesn't go unnoticed by the hockey fans, but this has been a, a, a dream come true for yours truly since, you know, I mean, you were the dreaded Montreal Canadiens. <laughs> yeah. And you could score, you could fight. You were just a guy we didn't want to play against, but boy, I, we really, I enjoyed watching your play, but, but you're a, a wonderful human being who decided to come on this father and son hockey podcast and uh, we're we're so grateful. Well, I, I thank you so much. Uh, I thank you for giving me the platform pa- platform to talk about mental health because it means a lot to me. And talking about my career is a lot of fun too. And uh, you guys did a great job. I'll tell you right now, father and son, you guys are you got to keep it going because you do a really good job. Uh, your son's amazing at it. So I don't know if you went through school to be to do this or whatever, but you should keep doing it. Oh. And uh, I just want to say, I uh, love Boston. Love the peace people of Boston. Uh, it's it's uh, somewhere I love going to, and uh, I really love the, the city and the people there. They're just they're huge sports fans and good people and and fun people. So, I just wanted to say hello to all them, and we'll see them uh, probably next year a little bit. And hopefully, I, I talk to you guys again one day, and we can talk more hockey and more about mental health. And uh, good luck to both of you. So I hope you uh, keep doing this. All right, great. Thank we're you just, so much. We're gonna pause this. Just hang on. 
Okay. Shane Corson, what a great guy. Yeah. Very nice of him to come on the show and to, to talk some stories with us, take the time to answer the questions, and of course, speak about mental health. And dad, like you said, I think you put it perfectly, especially, uh, you know, with COVID going on and everything, a lot of people are struggling. I think that people, you never know if, if Shane may have helped somebody today, if they're struggling and they listen to his words and maybe find different ways to cope and to do things. I know it's important for him. So it's a good thing to have him on and to talk about things like that. In, as our, well. in our politically correct society, uh, you know, sometimes mental health, it gets a, uh, a bad rap or, you know, everybody has anxiety. So therefore it's played down. But when you have, um, you know, and speaking to your stepmom, the physician, um, it's, it, it's a real thing. And like, you know, as Shane was talking about, it can be debilitating and it can get to the point where people can contemplate and in their life, but certainly they can't function at the level that they need to function in whatever job, especially a professional athlete, right. but everybody's struggling. And again, it's a, it's, it's, everybody's at different levels and everybody needs different treatments in different ways, but most importantly, they just need support. Right. And like you said, with the COVID, we still have that around. Uh, uh, it's affecting a lot of people and we just can't say, Oh, someone's, Oh, they feel, no, they're, they're really suffering and we need to support them. And in order for us to get out of this COVID pandemic, we're going to have to kind of love and support each other here. Right. And if you can see a guy like Shane Corson, who's, I mean, come on, no one's battled harder than this guy right. in, in, in what he does. And he can say, Hey, look, this, this, you know, almost ended my, my career at one point until I had to get help. So reach out to the people. Um, and, like he said, if you go to talk to somebody and you feel that you're being judged or it's the wrong person, find the right person. Right. Absolutely. And I think that was just a good thing that he had talked about that. It was great hearing all those stories and everything. And as most people, if you're listening to this right now, you, you know that Shane Corson was also just on spitting chiclets. But I think that this one was a bit different. So to the people, I hope that they enjoyed a different maybe spin on you know, Shane Corson's stories, maybe some different stuff he, he talked about as well. So I hope everybody enjoyed the, the dreaded Montreal Canadian Shane Corson. Yeah, well, and, and again, just for Bruins fans, but, you know, he went on to play Edmonton, St. Louis, St. Louis yeah. you know, Toronto, and then Dallas, right? And his, yep, career, and in his career in Dallas. Uh, 19 years, I think. I mean, a hockey legend. Right. So, you know, and he's, I think he's 54 or 55, something like that little older than me so what a great guy and he like you said he was on spit chicklets he's talking to the guys former players but yet he's nice enough to come on for an hour and and talk to us and really just let us ask him anything and uh he's just a great guy I, he, all, all the respect to shane corson and and uh as we keep talking about the more we bring players uh from all leagues to our listeners i think everybody's starting to find out that uh people are just hockey players are nice guys nice human beings just like the rest of us they just have elite skills in right. hockey they got they got talent yes yeah so uh speaking of we've got uh a lot of guests starting to come up our guests are starting to line up here and we want to thank our listeners where we peaked at 87 in the United States hockey podcast at one point, and we started to make the charts. I forget what it was in Canada. So we're starting to make some headway into Canada. This is episode 20. 20. Um, please go to uh, uh, Apple podcast, podcast yeah. and, and give us a five-star rating. Don't give us a one. Give us a five-star rating. Yeah. And um, 
you know, that's helping us to get a little bit of credibility, I think. And who do we got coming up on guests coming up here in the future? We've got some good ones. Yeah, so we actually have a former Bruin, um, played a few games, but Terry Virtue, if you happen to remember him from back in the day, he'll be on here the 13th. And I don't want to comment on the others yet because um, we're waiting to actually confirm dates with them. But we've got, I mean, I'm not going to lie about Six, seven guests. And we were last week supposed to have an interview with Gary Steffes. Correct. Uh, you know, Allen All-American ECHL uh, had his number retired, highest score on that team. Yep. And due to just... Um, um, just logistics and time. Yeah, really, the, just kind of- the, the time zone mess up. He's on the West Coast and, and we just couldn't uh, get that interview. And we almost had that problem here with Shane Corson. Right. We got to get better at uh, remembering time zones. Well, you know, we're in central standard time. You know, yeah, we're in the middle of the weird. country, so right. we're central. So we got to, you know, and it's not hard, but when you put on the spotlight, oh, hey, what is that on Pacific time? And you, you know, and you just spat something. Right. And that's what I did today. I, I messed up with Shane. He was on two hours early. And John he was great. Yeah, he was gracious enough to uh, to go, okay, you're an idiot, and I'll call back in two hours. Yeah. <laughs> just sitting in my office, and Thanks, I get Shane. an email like, uh, <laughs> hey, I'm on this thing here. Where, where are you guys? And I'm like, oh, boy. Yeah. Well, we appreciate everybody tuning in. We hope that you enjoyed um, episode 20. And don't forget, um, the show wouldn't be possible if we didn't have the platform of the Black and Gold Podcast Network as well. So thank you to Mark and Black and Gold for, of course, continuing to support our show and using that podcast show platform. Yeah, absolutely. And we started with Shane Corson, uh, but we're going to try to announce a few days or a week ahead of time who our next guest is going to be. And if you have any questions that you would want us to ask, because some of our questions today would direct from Twitter, yep. uh, we'd be more than happy. This is a fan podcast and we'd be uh, more than happy to ask them your questions. So just kind of let us know on Twitter what you want us to ask. And we'll do it. All righty. Episode 20. Everybody have a wonderful rest of the week. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you, guys.